travellers or locked down dreamers and welcome to our podcast number 21 in the series You Should Have Been There with me Simon Calder and me Mick Webb. Well today we're looking forward resolutely as rules are relaxed and lockdowns are lifted albeit tentatively across Europe but what do we expect to find in the new world? And how on earth do we go about mitigating risk to ourselves and to others? I'm particularly interested in the middle seat of planes issue. And of course, we must all ask, how do you stay alert in a yurt? Well, Simon, I think you're the man who knows. Well, that's kind of you. Since I made a messy and expensive exit from Yemen being woken in the middle of the night in the middle of March to be told the last plane out to Aden and then Cairo will be leaving in a few hours. I've done really little else than study when we might be able to travel again. And before you go on your next foreign trip, I've come up with these five tests. So just as the British government has five tests before easing the lockdown, the prospective international traveller must consider these five tests. Number one, can I reach the airport, the seaport, an international rail station? At present, of course, the lockdown rules make getting to Manchester Airport, Portsmouth or London St Pancras impossible for a non-essential journey. In England, you're told... Day trips to outdoor open space in a private vehicle are permitted. You should practice social distancing from other people outside your household. Leaving your home, the place you live, to stay at another home for a holiday or another purpose is not allowed. And in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, the rules have not been changed. You will stay at home. Well, first of all, let me congratulate you on your five tests. It does sound very official. In fact, um, I'd be tempted to rename it Five Pillars, the Five Pillars of Wisdom, in homage to the great uh, desert traveller T.E. Lawrence, although I think he had seven pillars of wisdom, didn't he? I think he did, but um, uh, well, the pillar number two, uh, supporting this whole enterprise of getting you away, Mick, and everybody else... Has the Foreign Office warning against overseas travel been lifted? The present official advice says... As countries respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, including travel and border restrictions, the FCO advises British nationals against all but essential international travel. Any country or area may restrict travel without notice. And that's both global and indefinite. No overseas leisure journey can be contemplated while it prevails not least because to do so would invalidate your travel insurance so basically we're um we're waiting on the r number and another announcement because if i remember rightly the last thing we heard from uh, matt hancock health secretary at the beginning of this week was that uh, pretty well summer holidays were cancelled and he was certainly telling us that um lavish international holidays if that's what we were contemplating were out of the question uh, yes although it would have sounded better perhaps coming from the foreign secretary um and not being on uh, a daytime uh, television program but in the form of an official statement so everybody knew what the heck was actually going on anyway on to my pillar number three 
and that's very straightforwardly is there a flight a ferry or a train to my destination because of course the range of transport opportunities we enjoyed before lockdown began has shrunk to a tiny fraction now some services are continuing and airlines such as Ryanair have vowed to start operations at scale in July but even then the frequency of flights and the range of destinations is going to be reduced Uh, Do you think that'll probably mean then that if we can want to, need to uh, travel somewhere, then it'll be to the rather more obvious places rather than some of the more, um, shall we say, out of the way destinations that have been favoured by airlines such as Ryanair and Wizz Air and the like? Uh, Yes, a good example is actually in April we were supposed to see the launch of flights from uh, Stansted Airport uh, near London to Tercera, uh, one of the um, loveliest uh, parts of the Azores. And that, I don't think, will be starting up. It's going to be the usual suspects, Barcelona, Alicante, Faro, Palma, um, Rome, and then a sprinkling, perhaps, of Greek islands. But that really takes us on to... Uh, pillar four will the destination admit me and that's likely to be the most critical question because many countries around the world have some combination of flight bans and restrictions for people from certain countries uh the uk is often prominent on any list of um not necessarily especially desirable aliens and in addition Many nations insisting on 14 days of mandatory quarantine for inbound travellers. And that's, of course, to uh, the idea being that everyone is presumed to have coronavirus until quarantine proves otherwise. Now, Greece is one of the Mediterranean nations that's been looking pretty good at welcoming people in. It's done very well in terms of keeping a lid on coronavirus itself, and it's actively looking at restarting tourism on the 1st of July, which conveniently for an awful lot of Europe is really the first day of the summer peak. But as I've been hearing from Tanasis Gavos, who's the UK correspondent of the Greek broadcaster Sky, uh, not to be confused with any other broadcasters with similar names, um, British holidaymakers may not be instantly welcomed. I, I would be lying if I didn't say there were still some uncertainty. Uh, especially for for the UK visitors, there is concern. I mean, uh, there is huge concern about how the government here in the UK has been dealing with the pandemic. So we might possibly see Britons being one of the last that will be permitted in Greece. But again, the plan is for them to be accepted there in July as well. Mm, Well, that reminds me of the uh, famous phrase which was used of Britain, uh, well, in the 1960s, and then I think uh, in succeeding decades as well, when our um, economic performance was not quite up to the mark, the sick man of Europe. Now it um, sadly seems to be uh, even more appropriate. Well, that takes us on to the fact that the government believes in the UK, clearly, that the problem is going now to be from outsiders. Um, The plan is, and we've only had leak after leak after this, uh, of this, and then a contradictory statement from the Prime Minister saying that all arrivals by air will be quarantined and then later all arrivals except those from France and then later still all arrivals, whether they come by sea, air or 
uh, rail and no matter if they're arriving from France. And the sequence of, of just... Uh, uh, bizarre leaks has been extraordinary. It's, it's now, I think, it's pretty much, uh, yeah, the start of May, they said, we're going to do this. And here we are at the uh, time of recording. We're over halfway through May and there's still no clarity about when it will come in. And so let me emphasise, this is pillar number five. Can I tolerate any quarantine rules on return to the UK? And up until now, Britain has remained open. No checks on anyone coming into the country. Uh, you just get off the plane um, and um, you handed a piece of paper saying if you're not feeling well, then self-isolate and call NHS direct. Um, now, there were in the very early days some quarantine arrangements for people coming in from Wuhan, you might remember, and also from uh, those towns in northern Italy that were on the list. And then that was all removed. And so now... The government says that because uh, the rate of infection is going down in the UK and other countries are lifting their lockdowns, now is the time to make everyone self-isolate for two weeks on arrival. Um, of course, that is going to make the appeal of a weekend away or a week on the beach um, dwindle to pretty much zero for most people. And I've been talking to um, one of the most powerful people in travel. This is Michael O'Leary. He's the chief executive of Ryanair. And he told me the entire idea is bonkers. I think what's regrettable is that the UK government has put forward this non-scientific quarantine. And they should have said, like most other countries have said, Face mask mandatory, temperature checks mandatory, and, you know, isolation irrelevant. Well, that um, brings us neatly on to how air travel may well change. Um, but do you think uh, Michael O'Leary's uh, ideas are generally supported by uh, others? Well, they're certainly supported by the pretty much entire aviation industry, um, all the way from individual airlines such as his to uh, the airports. Heathrow, very, very vocal about this. Um, and the international organisations such as uh, IATA, which is the Airlines Trade Association and um, Airports Council International. They want international agreement on everybody wearing a face mask, as they go through airports, as they are on aircraft and they want temperature checks before you get on board. And some even say um, when you land too. Um, but not everybody agrees that it's a brilliant idea. And I was listening to the uh, daily briefing from number 10 on Friday, the 15th of May, um, when Dr. Jenny Harris, who's the deputy chief medical officer for England, um, said this. Temperature, um, I've spoken about this before, the evidence around uh, temperature checks, whether it be on borders or whether it be going into work, uh, and particularly for COVID, is not a very uh, valid intervention in terms of scientific prevention. If you have an incubation period up to 14 days, the chances of you finding somebody with that temperature on the minute that they walk through a border or the doorway to work is very small. Um, and in fact, we know that quite a large proportion of people who have symptoms for COVID uh, actually do not have a temperature, at least in the early symptomatic phase. So that sounds fairly lukewarm to me. Um, and on face masks, if you listen to the chief medical officer, whose words are spoken here by an actor, as they say, the evidence on face coverings is hardly compelling. Wearing a face covering may have some benefit in reducing the likelihood that a person with the infection passes it on.
The most effective means of preventing the spread of this virus remains following social distancing rules and washing your hands regularly. And at the risk of challenging the chief medical officer, I suggest that the most effective means to stop this spread in terms of air travel is for, of course, for anybody um, who feels remotely symptomatic to self-isolate and don't go anywhere near a plane or anybody else. Well, that's fair enough. And I think personally, uh, having for about six weeks been absolutely convinced that uh, face masks were a good thing, um, (laughs) uh, I suspect that if we travel anywhere outside the UK, which obviously has a sort of strange kind of approach to um, what the rest of the world thinks is a very good idea by deciding that we know better, um, we will find that uh, we won't be welcome anywhere unless we actually have what I believe our um, Prime Minister calls a face covering. But I think he probably said that in order to stop people going out to buy face masks because quite clearly we don't have enough of them. I mean, I think, as I I mentioned at the beginning, what I'm particularly interested in is whether or not uh, actually travelling for two to four hours, say, on an aircraft is a safe thing to do. Does the um, onboard air system actually just recycle germs or does it filter things out? Or what do you think? Uh, Look... In all the many discussions that have been taking place about aviation, um, uh, very few times has it been pointed out that social distancing and aviation are totally incompatible. Of course they are. You suddenly go from a time where if I saw you um, walking down Streatham High Road, I would give you a wide berth with the greatest respect, Um, suddenly to a situation where you are being processed through an airport which is entirely designed to uh, get through as many people as possible in as small space as possible, um, and then put on an aircraft with 180 people you do not know, um, all sitting cheek indeed by jowl. Now, the airlines say we have got these marvellous, they're called high efficiency particulate air filters, which are the same as uh, they have in operating theatres. So don't worry, everybody, it will be fine. Some airlines say we're going to leave the middle seat empty. Indeed, um, Air Canada says it's going to do that and help protect uh, the Canadian NHS, save lives, etc. But they're only going to do it till the end of June because presumably after that their bookings are picking up. Um, so the jury is out, but uh, uh, I, I yeah, we've seen lots and lots of pictures of, of flights with overcrowding, with people just behaving as they normally do on planes, and um, uh, the the sense of alarm and outrage is quite remarkable, I think. And to anybody who's worried about um, travelling by air in the present in, uh, time, I would say don't travel by air at the present present time. I. You you were never going to eliminate risk from a situation like that. All you can do is hope that other people are not uh, venturing out if they're symptomatic, washing their hands and so on. But no absolute guarantee at all, I'm afraid. Well, we know that uh, a significant number of people are asymptomatic, that uh, uh, people who then develop uh, palpable symptoms go for some days um, without showing any and are still apparently able to transmit the virus. So I think that um, uh, it's clearly a risky business. And of course, we don't know what the risks are, particularly coming from this country, until we've 
find out what the prevalence of the disease is and where it is um, uh, most likely to be found. So um, um, I must say that uh, uh, in order to support my uh, view of this, i.e. extreme um, wariness, I looked at an article recently published in the Washington Post, which quoted a kind of interesting study. It's a long time ago, actually. Dates from the time of, of SARS, um, which is the nearest thing I think we've had to the coronavirus. Uh, and it was in March the 15th, 2003 when a Boeing 737 took off from Hong Kong for a three-hour flight to Beijing um, with a feverish 72-year-old man sitting in 14E. And of the 120 people on board, 22 were later diagnosed with confirmed or probable cases of SARS. Um, Researchers um, said that uh, it was very plausible and most likely that they were infected on the plane by the man in seat 14E. He died of a typical pneumonia a few days after the flight. Um, And in fact, people sitting as far as seven rows in front of him uh, were also infected, as were two flight attendants, and five passengers later died. So um, I consider that um, a a worrying case, although obviously... um, other studies, particularly ones which have involved the airline industry, have suggested that this might have been an exaggerated um, uh, finding. Oh, no, I, I, it's a fascinating study. I'm, I'm actually going to refer you to the original, which is the um, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and this is a very good uh, uh, article by it's got about 10, 10 authors um, from December the 18th, 2003. Um, and they do go through it and they, they talk about other possible sources, which could be, for example, you know, a, a completely randomly picking it up from other people. But of course, the fact that the, all the it was such a cluster makes that unlikely. Um, and it does make the make nonsense of the fact that uh, anybody who says, oh, we'll just uh, uh, make sure that you're not sitting next to somebody with um, uh, coronavirus is um, not much help. Uh so it, it's it's a real worry. And I, I repeat, you know, there is no way you're going to get down to zero risk. And if you are in one of the risk groups, so you're an older traveller, you've got a pre-existing medical condition, then obviously your tolerance of risk is likely to be lower than, than other people's. But um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating um, a bit of uh, uh, research. And I would urge people to read it um, probably in, in full. And we'll put a link to that article Uh, on our uh, website anchor.fm slash you should have been there without any spaces between the words okay I'm going to adopt a merrier outlook on life and um, let's assume we can get away and get somewhere Uh, what will we find when we get there I think you've been uh, having a look into what awaits us in the uh, rest of Europe, Simon? Uh, yes, and actually I'm going to Germany um, for, for my evidence. So um, there are a number of newly opened German hotels. They make face coverings absolutely mandatory. You'll be, you'll be glad to hear for both guests and staff in all public areas of the hotel. Um, you do not have a buffet. You either get a la carte or you get room service. Um, if you're getting on in the lift, um, maximum capacity two, unless it's a family group. And 
uh, that is then extended to what the biggest travel company in Europe has said. This is TUI. And they came out uh, last week with, right, here's the future as we see it. And they're taking lots and lots of precautions all the way through. Um, they're going to have, instead of the huge all-inclusive buffet, there will be you going up and queuing up and getting close to people and spreading your infections and everything else. They're going to have waiters in face masks who are uh, delivering what you need to your table. Um, there's also going to be social distancing in hotels, but ridiculously because the social distancing rule in Germany is 1.5 metres and the one in Britain is 2 metres. You could have two hotels next to each other um, overlooking the beach somewhere in Mallorca. One for Germans, they're 1.5 metres apart. One for Brits and they're 2 metres apart. So it just shows you the number of problems that are awaiting. It is all relative, isn't it? Um, and uh, that's probably about the only way you'll be able to get away with a group of people if you take your relatives with you. Um, do you know what I saw last week, which I rather enjoyed, was uh, a report on the television news of an Amsterdam restaurant, which I think was on the side of one of the canals, uh, where social distancing had been achieved by um, putting the tables and each pair of diners into little greenhouses and then they were brought their food by people suitably equipped with masks and all the rest of it. And I, I thought that was quite sweet actually because it meant you could uh, look out and actually be protected from the breeze as well because it's not all that um, warm sometimes in Amsterdam and it did remind me of a possibly the weirdest um, restaurant experience I ever had in Spain at a time when smokers were uh, in the process of being banned from smoking in restaurants and I went um, with my partner Steph to this I think it was an Asturian restaurant because they sold cider uh, although it was somewhere in Catalonia, um, a small town in Catalonia. And there in this cavernous restaurant, there was me and Steph eating at our table. And then there were acres of um, uh, empty tables. And then in the very middle of the restaurant, in this funny kind of glassed in aquarium kind of place there are about 30 Spanish diners in a fog of cigar and cigarette smoke <laughs> munching away and um, it could be a little bit like that couldn't it well, I think part of the joy of travel, of course, a huge part of it is seeing what cultural differences there are. And we will now have a new focus, whether you go to Amsterdam, Barcelona, Copenhagen or anywhere else in the alphabet, you'll be able to see how they cope with the time of coronavirus. So I think it's going to be quite fun. But look... I have been doing a lot of online surveys. Now, I know that a Twitter poll is entirely self-selecting. You cannot judge too much um, uh, from them, and I wouldn't want to put too much emphasis on it. But I am all the time uh, asking people, if you could go away, would you go away? And earlier on today, I uh, simply asked, um, uh, would you be happy to, when would you be happy to venture abroad again this summer? Only 6.4% in June, 10% in July, 19% in August and an astonishing 65%, so almost two in three. Um, and this was well over 7,000 votes. So a lot of people bothered to click their preference, um, say not this summer. So I think a lot of people are going to be 
staying in the UK, which is going to be um, full of uh, fun and um, excitement and difference uh, as well, because as has been uh, widely discussed, um, lockdown in the four nations of the UK, um, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, are going at different rates. I think the... uh, uh, all the countries apart from England would be on your side, thinking we are relaxing things far too early. But there's still no possibility. You're not allowed to go on holiday. That's absolutely clear. You're not allowed to go by train. You've got to save the space for essential workers and people with uh, really important journeys. So um, I'm now contemplating whether or not I could possibly cycle from my home in London to uh, Brighton, and back on the same day. That's a journey of at least 110 miles, um, longer than I've ever done in a day, because um, I just want to see some sea. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, a funny old time from all points of view. And talking of funny old times, I want to take you back to the your first great adventure abroad. And um, uh, you've been continuing your search for your erstwhile travel companion, um, Gerald Bernstein. I, I have indeed. Um, my first uh, attempt to um, trace him uh, hit the buffers in um, Philadelphia. So this time um, I tried a Gerald Bernstein in France. Um, I actually thought I really had found him. Um, I tracked down the name on Facebook and I found a Gerald Bernstein in a village called Montuscla. Um, a very tiny hamlet, um, about 25 kilometres east of an interesting town, small city. It's a town, really, called Le Puy. Uh, have you ever... Oh, well, I've, I've been there exactly once, exactly once, and I can tell you precisely the circumstances. And I was um, uh, heading back from my first trip to Spain, and I'd hitchhiked uh, from... I, it was just in those dreadful days when nobody would pick me up on the reasonable grounds that I had a, a, a Belgian army greatcoat, long hair, and hadn't had a bath for a week. Um, and finally got picked up by a very nice couple at a service station just outside the beautiful city of Montpellier. Um, and they said, we're going to Le Puy. And furthermore, you can stay in our beautiful apartment. And furthermore, we're going to cook you dinner. How nice was that? Unfortunately, what I hadn't reckoned with was them doing their regional speciality, which was, um, unfortunately, le tripe, tripe. Uh, First and last time I've ever eaten tripe. And of course, you do have to chew it all in order to um, uh, demonstrate your gratitude to these very kind people. But I didn't meet anybody called Gerald there. Well, you... Might have been unlucky there because their other best-known uh, speciality is lentils. Pre-lentils come from Le Puy. And um, I don't know if you were feeling well enough the next day to have a look around you. But uh, the most astonishing thing about it, and it is in a very uh, dramatic and volcanic region, is a statue of the Virgin Mary perched on top of this needle of a volcanic rock sticking up in the very centre of the town and then just a little bit further out a, a medieval chapel even more unlikely on a incredibly sort of sharply pointed outcrop and it dates from the 10th 11th century I thought absolutely spectacular anyway and, and what a great place to explore um, but the crucial thing I need to know is Will we meet Gerald? Well, I found that Gerald 
seemed to be the proprietor of a very nice-looking um, holiday uh, place called an Espace Nature, the Espace Nature de Sabatou, um, a collection of little wooden chalets and a campsite, a little swimming pool, which were all grouped around a pleasant-looking restaurant. And all the reviews pointed out the warm welcome that they'd received from Le Propriétaire. And I found some photos of him on, on their website. Uh, a small, balding man of probably about my age. Who could have been Gerald? <laughs> Alas, I dug a bit deeper and discovered that uh, the proprietor of the Espace Nature, the only shareholder... Um, I really did this seriously, was born in 1961. And that's the time the real Gerald and I were starting at grammar school. And then I discovered that he was actually called Gérard, G-E accent R-A-R-D, and not Gerald at all. And so it was a mistake on the Facebook entry. So sadly, no luck in the Auvergne. Well, I do hope that you will managed to have at least a brief encounter with Gerald and as the best links do this takes us smoothly on to podcast number 22 which is on the subject of brief encounters of course there is a wonderful film of that title which is very much based on travel and filmed at Carnforth Railway Station um, just north of Lancaster on the West Coast Main Line. Um, we will also be talking, I hope, about brief encounters you might have had along the way. Brief encounters, the uh, very stuff of travel. Until next week then, it's goodbye from me, Mick Webb. And from me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye.